I'm here to welcome you for a special presentation uh, from Dr. Ottawali Troutman. Dr. Troutman is a leading expert nationally in the subject of health equity. Before we get started, though, I have this list of things I'm supposed to talk about. So it's our third presentation now in the Health Equity Learning Series, and it's an opportunity to learn more about the social determinants of health and how that has an important role in advancing health equity. Uh, I want to point out that in addition to the presentation, we put some materials at your table. The first is a piece from Dr. Troutman. I have to point out many people contributed to the article. Uh, its title is, What If We Were Equal? A Comparison of the Black-White Mortality Gap in 1960 and 2000. And I think this explains the health inequities that are really present in our country. You also have highlights from a new report from the Colorado Trust. This is a report about language and access issues in healthcare. Uh, as with many of our reports, there were many contributors, and I want to acknowledge just two of them today, Erica Baruch, who wrote the brief, and Sherry Walker, who served as editor. Thanks to both of you for this great piece of work. All of these information pieces are present on our website, uh, coloradotrust.org. I also need to point out that we have several people joining us who aren't in the room. They are virtual participants across the state. We've organized viewing parties with the help of local communities and organizations, and we're uh, live streaming this presentation to Alamosa, Colorado Springs, Durango, Eagle, Fort Collins, Frisco, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Gunnison, Leadville, Montrose, Monte Vista, Pueblo, Steamboat, Yuma, and my hometown, La Junta. So I want to welcome you in the virtual world as well. Uh, if I let anybody out, I know I'll get comments later. Uh, then I have to uh, point out that we are also using social media today. If you'd like to follow the conversation on Twitter, use the hashtag HealthEquityTCT. You may also submit questions to us via Twitter during the Q&A session. We'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can in the time allotted. And uh, all of those conversations will follow our presentations. So I want to get started then by uh, briefly introducing Dr. Adewale Troutman. Uh, I could take the rest of the time to talk about Hala's accomplishments and his impact on the issue of health equity in the United States. He's the director of the Public Health Practice Program at the University of South Florida, and he's the president of the American Public Health Association. For more than 40 years, he's studied and worked to advance health equity and to eliminate racism and other social injustices. He's the founder of the nation's first center for health equity at the Metro Louisville Department of Public Health and Wellness, and is featured in the documentary Unnatural Causes, is inequality making us sick? This is a very powerful series of programs. Uh, Dr. Troutman's session has stuck with me uh, since the first time I saw it and, and is incredibly useful in thinking about place-based issues and health uh, equity. With that, I'd like to go ahead and welcome Dr. Adewale Troutman. I'm really um, happy to be back in Colorado here at the, at the Trust. Had the opportunity to be here a couple of times in the past, and I wanted to make sure I thank Ned and Chris and Maggie for making this a, a seamless operation so far. We're really excited to be here. 
So this is the rest of the introduction. This is the most important part of the introduction. Uh, I would normally ask you to check, pick and choose and see which one is me, but we're in a tight time frame today. So I'm going to tell you, that's me over there, little guy with the big smile. And that's my mother, who's now 95 years old, living, still living in the Bronx by herself. And with a 75-year-old boyfriend. So, so we, we, we call her the original cougar. But, you know, I was born in the South Bronx, um, you know, the trip, typical um, uh, poverty profile. My mother... Uh, was raised with three boys by herself. My father left when I was four, and we had to kind of struggle. But, you know, I went, went, my mother often went without food, and I have to mention that since we're eating lunch today. She told us that in later years that sometimes there was not enough food, so she made sure the kids ate, and she didn't. So I, a lot of respect for my mother. Um, typical profile for, for someone growing up in my era. Uh, I, I don't want to go through all these in, individually. But just want you to recognize that I did not come from, I didn't, wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Sometimes you see, you see somebody with an MD or an, or, or an advanced degree and you figure that life was easy. My life was, was pretty difficult, but it also set the stage for me to understand issues of, of social justice and human rights and the continued existence of racism in America. But I did find my way out. Um, I, the single most important thing in my life in terms of finding my way out of, of, of being uh, raised in a, in a poor community was, uh, was an understanding and an awareness of the movement. You know, as, a, as a kid born in 1946, I was in the 60s and 70s being, uh, being raised, I was a part of the movement. Now, not necessarily the civil rights movement by, by itself or the Black Power Movement or the Nation of Islam or the Young Lords. Uh, we were talking about that last night over dinner. But I was a part of... I was a part of trying to change the world, a recognition that things were not the way they should be, that people were being stepped on, their lives were being snuffed out, people were being murdered and lynched and kept out in general, and that has been what's driven my, my entire life uh, to get to where I am today. So we are all connected. This is just some of the data that we pulled out in, our, in looking at uh, what was going on here in Colorado, um, the notion of uh, infant mortality differences uh, that we've been talking about for years, the continued, you know, the continued gap is what I think many of us have been talking about, because there's been improvement in the health of this country overall. We all know that life expectancy has increased. Uh, in fact, communicable diseases have been decreased. Chronic diseases are somewhat under control with some problems around diabetes and, and obesity. But the gap in excess death continues and has continued unabated for centuries. So even the great philosopher Mufasa knew this. And in my best James Earl Jones voice, so I can find the microphone, he said, we are all connected by the great circle of life. But that's an important consideration. There's no, there's no us or them. There really isn't. We're, there's only us. And to the extent that we break down that barrier, that's to the extent that we have the kind of society that we all want to live in. Framing is extremely important. We watched the, um, the talk that uh, Paula Braverman did, uh, I think, two times ago. And the notion of framing becomes extremely important in, our, in, in working our way through this. How do you frame an issue? How do you define an issue? Determines how you use your resources, who your allies are, who your enemies are, 
what the, what, the, uh, what the policy choices are to get to the ultimate goal. Framing is extremely important. I think, matter of fact, maybe one of the most important things we do because it helps to determine the actions that we're going to take and the direction that we're going to take to solve our problems. And there are many, many different areas of framing that need to be addressed. We don't have time to go through them all. But notice, obviously, biological behavioral determinants versus social determinants. In a scale of determinants of health, I put biology and genetics on the bottom. I put that one on top, and we'll talk more about social determinants, obviously. And then the next one, I don't think, for me, it's not, it's not controversial. Creating health equity versus eliminating health disparities. Now, the history tells us that probably 1985 forward, health disparities as a concept became much more uh, popular or discussed in this country as, as, a, as, a, as a national priority. Um, health disparities means, and you, you know this, health disparities just means differences. We've tacked on other things to it to make it fit more uh, properly in the discussion. Differences by certain groups uh, uh, between you know, uh, health status and different disease entities, but it still comes down to the basic definition of differences, and that's what health disparities means. And the uh, eliminating health disparities to me has always felt like a um, give me something, let me help me get through this. It's not an empowering position to take. It's like, we're going to eliminate health disparities today, children. So I've gotten to the point that I, I try not to use it. It still pops in my head every now and then. I prefer to use the term health equity and creating health equity as a power verb. There's much more strength and in, in initiative in creating something than trying to eliminate something. So my language used, that I use is creating health equity. How do we go about doing that? Why is it important? Uh, certainly, you know, the health versus health care, the, 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 the Obamacare discussion, the recognition that we all know that health is only a small percentage of the total overall, health care is only a small percentage of the total overall, overall issue of health, which is everything that impacts health. Where you live, race and discrimination, housing, education, jobs, transportation, et cetera. And just for those of us who want to wish and dream, even though we have Obamacare now, you know, these two ladies say, what do you want for Christmas? World Peace is asking about, I'd settle for universal health care. Maybe one day. The Affordable Care Act, which is what we now have, which is now the law, has the opportunity to make some dramatic changes around health equity and health equity issues and access, equitable access uh, and cost. Um, how, it, how, it, how it works out in the, in, in, in the eventual outcome is still to be determined. You know, as you know, that some of the, some of the, uh, the uh, segments of the bill have been pushed back or the law have been pushed back in terms of their, their rolling out. One of my basic issues with, that, with the law as it currently reads is that we're talking about finding a way to incorporate 30 million more people into a healthcare insurance system that's broken. And I have to ask, have to ask myself, well, how is this going to make the ultimate difference and bring about elimination of the gap in excess death in our populations when the system that we have right now is a fragmented non-system of sick care where inequities flourish and prevention is an afterthought? So show me how you're going, we're going to do that, how we're going to turn that around, and I'll be more convinced that we can make a, net, make a difference in, in, the, in the overall issue here. I felt a long time ago that language is extremely important, and every opportunity I've had over the years to be at a table to push the notion of health equity, I've taken. So when I was invited to sit on the Secretary's Advisory Committee for Infant Mortality, I said, we have to be talking about health equity. It's now in the document. When I was invited to sit on the Citizens Advisory Committee for Health People 2020, we started talking about goals and objectives. I said, we have to have health equity in this, in this, in this, this argument. 
Um, what you see up there is, as one of the overarching goals for Healthy People 2020 is a compromise, I'll tell you straight up. Several of us felt we need to, we need to be talking about health equity. Others felt we still need to talk about eliminating disparities, so we compromise. So health equity is eliminating disparities. And for all groups, it's kind of health equity is health equity. Anyway. As APHA president, I had the responsibility of, of uh, establishing the pillars for the organization for this year. And at, true, to my, true to my beliefs, I said we need to be talking about creating health equity as the number one pillar for the American Public Health Association. So as I've traveled around the country visiting, uh, visiting affiliates, my position has been this is what you need to do. This is a part of the, the, the agenda you need to have, uh, creating health equity for your state and your state affiliate those that you, that you associate with. And then the next two, of course, being a, a, an aspiration kind of guy, I said, yeah, cool. We're going to assure the right to health and health care as the American Public Health Association. We let it, by tomorrow night at uh, 5 o'clock tomorrow evening, it'll be done. And then the pipelining issue. You know, many of us in this business are getting old and gray. And as I say, long in the tooth. I don't know what that means. But the importance of, of a pipeline coming behind us, but not just a pipeline, a pipeline who've been educated and oriented to social determinants of health and thinking about anti-racist uh, uh, operations and the relationship between public health and changing the, the paradigm of, of who lives longer and, and what, their, uh, what, what, are, what barriers are to their having a long, healthy life. Health equity is our definition. Um, uh, actually, some of this, you know, Paula Raven was actually involved in, in, in helping us to come to a, de a term, a definition that we like. And this is a bit more intense than I think what's currently out there, but if you look at the highlighted sections, it really talks about why this is, this is such an important issue. We talk, we talk about all people and the highest attainable level of health. We talk about valuing all people and populations equally, uh, optimal health for all groups, but particularly for those who, who have been experiencing historical or contemporary injustice or socioeconomic disadvantage. That's the definition that we prefer to use for health equity. I would hope that you would take a look at it and see how it fits into your thinking. And then the next one, this comes, out, comes prim primarily out of work of Margaret Whitehead in, in, in London, in Liverpool, rather. Uh, these elements are the ones that should stick in your head uh, as we talk about these differences, that they're not just accidental differences that have occurred, uh, that, well, gee, you know, we, we can, I don't know how this happened, but that they're systemic, they're avoidable, they're unfair, unjust, and you can put unnatural. They're th they were created by people. The systems we have in place, the systems of, of racial oppression and lack of opportunity were created by people, not by some divine figure or God, or whatever we want to define it as, but by, and, they, and because they've been created by people, they can be undone. They can be changed, they can be restructured. We can point to a place where we see down the line where we have true equity in, 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 in the globe. And by the way, health equity uh, is a global issue. We're not going to get into that today, but it is a global issue. Looking between countries, within countries, you could give lots of examples in places all around the world. Um, the, the document that we opened, that you have in front of you on uh, what if we were equal, uh, talks about the number of people who, who um, have been documented as excess deaths in the African-American community alone. 1985 Task Force report said there were 60,000 people of color who died in excess. That's African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans. Subsequent to that, we've added Native Hawaiians to, to the list. 60,000, that's all together. The work that we did with Dr. Satcher, that number rose to 83,000 
in the black community alone. Now, we, we like to use a, 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 an example of what that looks like. Remember the, the plane crash just, the other, just last week or so in San Francisco? If that plane were filled with, in this context, African-American populations, 300 or so in the plane, the plane took off every day, and every day that plane crashed, and there were no survivors every day, one year, every year. That's 83,000 people. If you add Latinos, Native Americans, Pacific Islands, poor whites, Native Hawaiians, we don't even know what the figure is. So we don't even know today how, how, how massive a problem we have because the data hasn't been done. It could be 200,000 people who are dying in excess in the United States because of things like race, ethnicity, language, uh, lack of access, et cetera. So anybody, any, any, any uh, epidemiologists who want a good project to work on, that might be one that you might want to consider doing. Um, in that context, of course, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, the, the, the great uh, liberator, said of all the injustices, injustices in health are the most shocking and inhumane. So, it, it, and my part of my, my thinking is that the civil rights movement that Martin Luther King was a major part of didn't really go far enough to deal with these issues. But this is fairly recent. You may have seen this document. This is the World Health Organization's uh, commission report on social deterrence of health called Closing the Gap in a, Gen Closing the gap in a Generation. Health equity through action on the social determinants of health. And the phase one says social justice is a matter of life and death. So this issue that we've been talking about is not uh, an issue that is just about um, access because we need access. This is a social justice issue. To the extent that it continues to exist, this system that we live in is socially unjust and inequitable. What are human rights? We talk about health as a basic human right. Well, they're higher order right, morally based, and universal. They belong to human beings because they're human beings. So we talk about health, health as a basic human right. Everyone who was born, every human being is entitled to that human right. And to the extent that groups do not have equitable access to human rights, there is a problem in the human rights system in America. You might even say that there's a violation of the human rights of African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Native Hawaiians, et cetera, because well, after all, you know, the, the death rates, the life expectancy, infant mortality, rates of hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, you name it. You know, at, at, not, not, not to leave out uh, homicide and, and, and violent injury. The gun issue is a big issue, which we hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about. I put this up because the big issue in the United States over the past several months has been the Second Amendment and the support for the Second Amendment, but where's the support for the right to health? And I'll tell you, as president of APHA, I wrote in my first editorial column that I do not support the Second Amendment. I got some feedback from some of the membership. How dare you? Uh, because it, does, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with today. It was written you know, to, to make sure if the British came back, that's, really, really, if the British came back, we'd have access to guns so we could fight the British off. Come on, that was 1770-something. What has it got to do with today? Absolutely nothing. So it would be, be fine by me if the if, if Second Amendment were to go away. If someone actually had the nerve to say to me, you don't support the Second Amendment? That's just like you're not supporting the end of slavery. Said, what? <laughs> really, for real, somebody said that to me. <laughs> so so here, is, here is the uh, WHO definition of, 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 um, of health. The enjoyment of the highest standard of health is fundamental, fundamental right of every human being without distinction for all these things. And I keep, I keep that in the presentation because sometimes people say, where is it written down that, that health is a basic human right? 
Well, it's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. But there are 114 countries in the United States in the world who have the language of the right to health in their Constitution, including Ecuador, Cuba, Taiwan. You could go on for, for another conversation about what's in there and why they do that. So Albert here, he didn't realize it, but he was in, he's involved in a conversation about health equity because Albert said, one of the things he's paraphrased uh, saying is that if we continue to do the same thing in the same way, expecting a different result, you're insane. And those who remember Moms Mabley, she said, if you do what you always did, you get what you always got. <laughs> so whichever one you like. But in the context of our work, the reason I put him in there is because we, for so many years, we've been following the medical model. We have been talking about closing the gap by increasing access and screening and education and whatnot. And that's not, it hasn't done it before and it's not going to do it in the future because we have to switch ourselves to a new direction, a new attention and a focus on the social deterrence of health. So here's the metaphor, and you've probably seen this before. I, I, I know Paula mentioned it in her talk as well, but I, have, I like to use the, 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 the visual image. That's, that there are two people standing on the bank of the river, and they're fishing. And before they can blink an eye, a baby floats down the river. And before they can jump in to get the baby, a second baby floats down the river. So the first guy puts his fishing rod down and jumps in the river to save the two babies. The second guy throws his fishing rod down and turns and starts running upstream. And the first guy calls to the second and says, yo, dude, come back. I need you to help me pull the babies out the river. And he says, no, I'm going upstream to find out who's throwing the babies in the river and stop them. So this is the analogy that we use. This is the web of causation from Nancy Krieger, who goes further to say that there is a spider. If there's a web of causation, there's a spider who built the web. And ultimately, we have to, we have to confront the spider, which is racism, institutionalized racism, gender discrimination, and socioeconomic inequity. That that is, that is the bottom line issue in the existence of continued existence of health inequities in, in, in the United States and the globe. A long definition of social determinants, you can read that in your leisure, but you know, pretty much it says that um, they're about the things that are, are related to the social environment, political environment, economic environment, uh, including racism and discrimination, which I mentioned before, that continue to keep people out of the system and, 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 and die at earlier, and earlier rates and have higher rates of various diseases, chronic and acute. This is a, a graphic representation of social determinants of health, which is very useful because sometimes we we get so deeply involved in social determinants that we forget the individual. Now, the flip side has been the case, I think, up to now. We've spent all of our attention on the individual. Uh, we've done such a good job in public health, by the way, of telling us that it's all about individual behavior that I think we've, we've now kind of struggling to get back and, and balance this. Um, the notion that, if, again, if you just take care of yourself as an individual, you're going to be okay. But the individual is on there, but then moves out from individual lifestyles to social and economic networks general social, economic, cultural, and environmental conditions, and then all the individual pieces in between, which you could spend quite some time on discussing. But the point is that this, it, yes, the individual's in the center, but it moves outward to uh, other, how, how, many, how many have you seen, may have seen the, the uh, pyramid that CDC uses for causation of disease? And at the, the base of the pyramid, the, the broadest base, is socioeconomic status and poverty. Unfortunately, the CDC doesn't go further than that and tell you what we need to do about it as an agency. There's the list. Uh, we don't have, uh, we're not going to go through the whole list because we have a short uh, session today and maybe we'll get to some questions and answers. But I, I highlighted a few 
uh, social economic status is occupation, education, and income, as you know. And if you ask anybody who, who's in this work, which is the most important? There's a question there about uh, uh, which one of these things is the most important in terms of making a difference. You know, you can take your pick. Is it education? Well, certainly, it, it, to, to, to the extent you have education and educational attainment, you get a better job, you live in a better community, a better neighborhood, you have more access to health care because you have better health insurance. Yes, and true. Is it occupation? Well, the better job you have, you know, the more, more money you make, you can just go around and around the circles in this. There are many who think that the most important uh, difference is the, is the gap in income. So conversations that people are having around the country now about uh, attacking the poverty rates, reducing poverty. We saw a, a program called uh, uh, Half in Ten, which is Nashville, Tennessee, decided that within 10 years they're going to reduce their level of poverty by 50%. Uh, that's, a, that's a public health approach, by the way. That's a public health intervention strategy, which we all should be taking a look because poverty drives an awful lot of what we're talking about today. Uh, education is, in my opinion, well, I don't know. It, it's certainly one of the top three. Uh, and educational attainment is tied to so many things, including high school dropout rates, which cause a shortened life expectancy. Race and discrimination, we're going to talk about uh, housing as well. These are the main ones that I want to talk about today in the few minutes that we have. Uh, not the least of which is stress. We don't talk, there's not a lot in the literature about uh, uh, mental health, behavioral health, but without a doubt, there is inequities in the distribution and the access to services for those who need support because of their own behavioral problems, whatever the issues are, both in terms of medication access, treatment access, um, uh, you know, open, go through any door notion, but those doors are frequently closed for people who, have, uh, who are poor and have no access to health insurance. Uh, st stress in and of itself, is, is, is implicated in, uh, as a major cause of chronic stress of multiple diseases, including shortened life expectancy and including infant mortality rates and low birth weight babies and professional women. That's, a lot of that's in uh, unnatural causes, which you may have seen. Education. Lower levels of educational attainment do all of these negative things to, to, to the kids who are exposed to that. You're more likely to score lower on standardized tests, be held back, you're less likely to have a college degree, I'd add more likely to be incarcerated. Many of you know some of the literature, the new literature about uh, planning, for the, planning for the building of, of, of uh, prisons and the number of cells that are necessary based upon high school dropout rates. So there's an association and the system knows that and, they, and they're preparing, not spending the resources to cut down on high school dropouts, but spending the resources to make their more prison cells available. So when these folks who drop out of high school break the law or seemingly break the law, uh, they, go, they, they have enough jail cells for them. Low earning potential uh, and, and life expectancy and educational attainment. Uh, education does many things. It, 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 there are psychological components to it. Uh, as a, you know, there's certainly the questions about how much you make and the kind of job you can have. Um, but it, it just leads to increasing your health now. There's a, an international quality of life assessment called PQLI, Physical Quality of Life Insurance which means uh, looking at infant mortality rates, literacy rates, and life expectancy, and determining where the health of the nation is by those three numbers in, a, in, a, in, a, in the context of a, of a mathematical formula. And education is probably the most important of those three, literacy. So that where do you spend your resources? Well, guess what? If you spend your resources on primary education, you may get more bang for the buck than hiring more doctors, training more physicians, opening more clinics in various communities. Income. Harvard researchers a few years back did this study, uh, looked at 282 cities in the United States, and they wanted to see what is the, 
that how can we evaluate deaths from income inequity compared to the rest of the work that we do? And this is what they're finding. Deaths from, is, deaths from income inequities is comparable to the combined loss of life, lung cancer, diabetes, motor vehicle crisis, HIV infection, and homicide. Now, it doesn't mean that you stop focusing on those things, but it says if we only focus on those things, we're missing, we're missing most of the boat. Death from income inequities. So again, reducing poverty, finding a way to redistribute income, which is a dirty word in many environments. I know not, not here, because you guys are very progressive and positive. Right? <laughs> I'll take an amen. <laughs> Housing. Aristotle, who knew he was an environmentalist and, and, a, and a health equity advocate? So tell me how a man died and I'll tell you where he lived. Really profound statement. And segregation, we, we, we kept this in the presentation because there's no doubt about the fact that residential segregation, first of all, it's, 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 the percentage of segregated populations is the greatest in the United States than any other industrialized country in the world. In the world. And we know that segregation, poverty, and race is a multiplier effect. Not just in that, so it's one plus one equals three. So if you're poor and you live in a, in, in a segregated neighborhood, you've got two, three times, four times the, the, the rate of, of, of problems. So the challenge becomes how do we, in fact, address um, segregation, residential segregation, the, the value of Hope Six projects, tearing down projects and building middle-income homes. But you've had to find a way to take care of the, the poor folk that you've, that you've taken out. Um, on the, on the, this side is a picture of a housing project in, in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and the question is always, is this, an, is this an environment that supports the health of children and families? I would suggest that it doesn't. If you look at that area in the back, the garbage in the back, no green space, uh, all the houses are built alike, it's just not a very welcoming environment. But on the other side, that's the same neighborhood. After a Hope Six project, I know many of you know about Hope Six, some of you may not. Hope Six is federal money from HUD to eliminate that and give you that where from one house to the next, you can't tell if the person is a Section 8 supported or had actually bought the house outright for money from cash in their pocket. And it breaks down the notion of, of, of segregation of poverty because you have these multi-level income users in this environment. And the one that was done in Seattle uh, actually talked about community engagement. They sat down with the community and asked them, what do you want? What does the house need to look like? And he said, well, you know, we, we like to play dominoes on the sidewalk. So we need big sidewalks. We like to sit in the front porch, so we need front porches. We have asthma, so we need special filtration units in the buildings to make sure that the air is filtered. And that's what they built with, with, the, with the engagement of that community and support of that community. They got housing now that's just perfectly and meets their needs wonderfully, and the projects are gone. They also have built into their, uh, their, their, help, their HUD project community gardens, et cetera. Oh, was racism. The definition from a good friend of ours, Kamara Jones from CDC, uh, she talks about it being a structured system of opportunity and, age and, and assigning value based upon the way somebody looks. So we all know that the Human Genome Project says there's no, no genetic definitions of race, but how you look that makes a determination. So uh, it unfairly disadvantages and unfairly advantages by sapping the strength of the whole society through the loss of human resources. So the, in, in, in a quick explanation, of the three levels of racism that Kamara talks about, which I make it a little easier to understand, I use a, a metaphor of a, of a green-haired individual. And I have decided in my own mind that if you have green hair, you're a criminal. So when I see somebody coming with green hair, I act appropriately. And 
protect myself, I get out of the way, I'd whatever, I call the cops so that this guy's bothering me. Now I work for the housing authority. And someone has said to me, I want you to write a, a policy that, uh, that talks about who's allowed to be, a rent, to, to be a renter in housing projects. So because I believe green-haired people are crooks, clearly I write the policy and says green-haired people are, in, are criminals and shouldn't be allowed to have an apartment. Now 10 years go by, 20 years go by, I leave, but it's now institutionalized, it's written in the policy. So it's no longer an individual mediated thing, it's now policy, it's now institutionalized. Then finally, people with green hair after a while said, you know something, the rest of society is right. We're criminals. So they change the way they act, change the way they behave, they become helpless, hopeless, and victims of the system. Those are three levels of racism, and I don't know which one is the most insidious, but they're all problematic. Many of you have never seen this. Um, I myself, uh, in, in driving down to Virginia with my mother, one day stopped at a Howard Johnson to, to go and get something to eat in Virginia. Right across the front door was a big strip that said, facilities for white only. Said, oh, and I'm a 16-year-old New York kid. Said, I, well, not, I'm going in here, I don't care. My mother said, no, I don't think so, let's go get back in the car. Uh, this is a representation of uh, another multi-generational trauma called the Trail of Tears, which many of you have probably heard of. This is the forced march of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, Native Americans, from the East Coast all the way out to the area of Oklahoma. Thousands died en route, probably buried on the side of the road or just left there. So this is the kind of, the, the notion here, looking at those two slides, uh, particularly the, the um, uh, both of them actually, one that focuses that focus on, on racism as evidence during, the, during the, the, the whole period of slavery and beyond, and one that focuses on what happened to the Native American population, which was certainly genocide, uh, make it um, clear that we have a long-term problem, that these are multi-generational issues, uh, multi-generational trauma, that we all have to find a way to address as we continue to deal with people and their issues. We, we, we don't have time, we're not gonna talk about cultural competence here today, because we don't have time, this is the question, but this is directly connected to that. You may have seen this, unequal treatment. This is a document from the Institute of Medicine which looked at all of the various studies that said there was racism and discrimination in the healthcare delivery system. And this is probably the one that was the most famous, the Shulman chest pain study. But they, these are all actors, eight actors, four black, four white. Uh, they were given a script to enter into the healthcare delivery system complaining of chest pain, suggesting cardiac arrest or suggesting the need for a dramatic intervention like send this person to the cath lab now. They need to have some cloudy, anti-cloudy medicine or whatever the deal was. Uh, and then they showed these videotapes to physicians and simply asked, what would you do in this case? Well, as it turned out, all the white males were sent to the cath lab as appropriate. Black males, black females, and even some of the white females were sent out the other door. As in, this is not a cardiac, uh, this is not a heart attack or an acute cardiac event. This is just GI. Maybe take some Maalox and call me in the morning. So the theory is, I mean, the, 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 the assumption is they walked out of the building went to get in their car or on the bus or on the train, dropped dead from a heart attack. And the conclusion of the study was that provider bias was directly implicated in what happened to that study, to those individuals, so that the notion of provider bias and cultural competence is really, really critical. We have to continue to find ways to address that issue. So, kind of, <laughs> these are the answers. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, don't have poor parents, don't live in a poor neighborhood, own a car, but use it for the weekends only. Walk to work, practice not losing your job. And don't become unemployed. Don't be illiterate, avoid social isolation, and try not to be a part of a socially marginalized group. So, <laughs> that's, 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 on a more serious note, 
Center for Health Equity, which, we, which, we, which was mentioned in the introduction, was the first time in the local health department we had such a center. Uh, the center was established in the middle of the black community with the consent of the, of the community that we worked with. And it was all about a community engagement and focusing on a new direction for public health. So we didn't set this center up to be a place where you can go and get information on diabetes education and screening. We sent this up to be a place to train communities on capacity building, policy change, engagement, advocacy, uh, and taking, on, taking charge of their community in terms of these multiple health issues that we're talking about. The center has done many things over the years. I highlighted only a few because I thought they were, they were significantly important. We talked last night at the dinner about the need to organize, to work with your communities. Um, we actually retrained our outreach workers to be, to, be, to be community organizers so that we had an immediate increase in the ability to touch people throughout the community in terms of organizing them around issues and policy issues. Uh, we gave money to the small community organizations that didn't have, it, didn't have history of money uh, to get them involved in mini-grants program. Um, we did a, what's called a community visioning process, which is um, bringing together around the table community groups and community leaders and, and inviting them to make determinations about what are the issues that they, they want to work on in their community. Um, very, very, very briefly, when I was in, in, in Atlanta, Georgia, we had, a, we had a, com a community called Vine City, which is the poorest community in, in, in Atlanta. And my staff had some, some preconditions about what they believed the problems were in that community. And they said, well, you know, we think it's going to be drug abuse and, and hypertension and whatever. So they went out to do a door-to-door, -door, which was by, by prescription, uh, and came back with the, the overwhelming surprise that the issue that everybody wanted to talk about was streetlights. That some of the heads and I, the principle that you can't just go in and tell somebody what you're going to do. You need to sit down with the community as equal partners, as in, as in community-based participatory research models, real partners, and listen to what the community wants. And that should be the starting point for, for you. Um, that's what the community visioning process was, undoing racism trains, et, et cetera. Um, health and all policies, I think we'll probably try to wrap up in this because we're going to run out of time. Health and all policies is, a, is, a, is an innovative, creative uh, direction that we think is, is, is the wave of the future. That is to say, we recognize that the issues that we're looking at are multidisciplinary, multisectoral, and that health departments, public health in and of itself, doesn't have the power, the authority, or the resources, or the or necessary expertise to lead the way when it comes to housing, education, transportation, you know, all these issues. But health and all policies says that every Every organization, like you see some of them that are listed here, that's involved in the process has an opportunity to look at it from the standpoint of health and how it affects the health of communities. And as you move forward in, in, in building out uh, uh, policies, processes, solutions, organized efforts around health and all policies, you get the, the greatest bang for the buck. Partnership, needless to say, is extremely important. You have to find ways to address the not only the typical partners, but the non, the atypical partners. Are we, or are we connecting with the social justice movements from around the city, uh, around the state of, of Colorado? Uh, we partner with an organization called Jobs for Justice as a health department in Metropolitan Louisville. We partnered with an organization that was an advocacy organization that actually organized against the mayor. And as working for the mayor, we nonetheless found a way to work with them, and that was a, a very, a very uh, positive partnership. CBPR we talked about. Collaborations and partnerships, they're, they're, they're extremely important in this work and engaging community. I think I just wanted one or two things about the engagement I want to mention. There are some preconditions in engaging with community. One of them 
is that you leave your ego outside the door. Uh, another one is that you, that you are a, a humble servant of the people. You are a people's servant, if you will. Uh, you can't go into a community with your head up held, held high and say that you're the answer in, in the salvation. A lot of my friends in medicine think that they were graduated with an MD at E degree. Did that pass you by? <laughs> MD at E? Oh, okay. <laughs> now you finally got it. Uh, just an opportunity to put a slide up with a picture of me at a, at a, at a farmer's market. No, that was another example of partnership with the local health department and the, neighbor, and the community around the, the, in our environment uh, to, to bring in, uh, um, deal with food deserts. The mayor and uh, from kids, some kids from a local school that named this project Health in, Healthy and Hurry Corner Store. This is one of the innovative projects that we developed to find ways to get uh, fruits and vegetables into, into poor communities and, and neighborhood stores. And yes, um, this side is what you find in, in neighborhood stores. You all, I'm shooting these pictures. Well, we did some research on the, light, the shelf life of this material and found that these chips and whatnot have 150,000 year shelf life. <laughs> so, so the attempt is to move, <laughs> is to move in that direction and get fruits and vegetables accessible into the communities. Uh, Photo Voice Project, another one of our creative uh, ways of addressing issues, and this is what the, we had kids, we did, the 10 year old kids, uh, had conversations with them about health and gave them uh, cameras to go out and take pictures and represent what they believe the community health is all about, and then brought them back, and the, the, the empowerment aspect of this was that their work was put together and shown to Metro Council people and the mayor as an opportunity to talk about policy at, at the young age of 10. This is a Michael age 10, this is a community center. And Michael took this picture and then wrote, this is what Michael said every day, I go to the community center on the side of it, they're selling drugs, they're showing off their guns, and sometimes I'm scared to walk past because I think they'll shoot me. He's age 10, he's already got a fear of being in his own environment. So we can move into the next phase of the program. Uh, again, this has been fairly, um, a fairly quick overview of social determinants and health equity and social justice. Uh, what I would hope is that, is that you had an opportunity to gain some new knowledge and that uh, you'll use the knowledge uh, as, as individuals and in organizations and, and foundations. This is worth your time and they maybe give you a new perspective on the work that we're all trying to do. Uh, I would like to, to think that you would take at least one actionable item uh, away from the conversation. If you didn't hear one from me, maybe just think about what we talked about and develop one for yourself. Certainly, some of the major issues around ongoing race and racism have to, find, have to be dealt with. Uh, what can we do? Um, collective consciousness, political will, that's a, that's a biggie as you know. Become a true ambassador for health equity and social justice. Um, genetic, genetic Cole, who was the president of, of Spelman, said, start looking at the world as if we all come from one womb. Goes along with my thought of there's, there's, no, there's no them, there's only us. Remember the power of one is real, and it is real. You can think about the individuals who have made dramatic changes in the history of the world, and that's one person who did that, so it could be you. Or it could be you in concert with the, with the Colorado Trust could make dramatic changes in, in the city, in the state, in the country. But this has to be a movement. My strongest advocacy point today is that we need, to, we need to find a way to get back to building movements, and this needs to be a movement based upon health equity and social justice. And I, and I can't say that we should do the way we did it in the 60s. Maybe this is not the way to do it, but an organized mass movement around health equity, social justice, and the right to health is what we need. And it is not necessarily without risk. As a matter of fact, it is a risky business, and, and this is the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, Denise and I went to South Africa a few years back and we stood here and looked at it and were hopeful for the future. Um, but there is risk involved. 
And I wanted to close by asking you to take an opportunity uh, in where you are in your seats to do a little visioning. Uh, one of my firm beliefs is that we don't, one of the reasons we have not achieved what we want to achieve is that we can't, we can't see it as a collective. We have, collectively can't see the vision. Um, you know, we talk about health equity, social justice. What does that mean? What does it look like? So I'm going to invite you to take a risk with me and take a deep breath and close your eyes. And if you're out there in, in the other, other cities and states, please feel free to join us. And just for a moment, think about the vision of what health equity looks like. What is, it, what is it going to look like when we achieve that point where nobody dies before their time because of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, poverty, et cetera? How do we get there? How do we feel when we get there? Recognizing it as a risk, and I'm going to share this with you as we sit in our state of vision. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out for another is to risk involvement. To expose your feelings is to risk exposing your true self. To place your ideas, your dreams before the crowd is to risk their loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure, but risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in life is to risk nothing. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, and is nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he can't simply learn, feel, change, grow, love, or live. Chained by his certitude, he is a slave. He has forfeited his freedom. Only a person who risks is free. I'd invite you to open your eyes and say hello to my little friend. <laughs> and as I sit down in the panel, I'm, I'm going to leave you with, uh, with, with Spock's words. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the needs of the one and just say, live long and prosper. So Maggie and Christy don't go too ballistic, but just a little off script here. Um, The trust is changing its direction and vision to addressing health equity. And I, I couldn't think of a more inspiring discussion to explain why. Um, why now? Well, one of the reasons why now is we should all be fed up. And we should be working on this right now. The other thing I have to say is that we really are at a unique time where there is a movement starting and there is a vehicle to help us get there in terms of the Affordable Care Act and other opportunities that have presented, been presented to us at a unique point in time that we have, to take we have to take advantage of. The other thing I realized as Dr. Troutman was talking is that <laughs> the sea is so big and my boat is so small. Mm. Um, the trust has considerable resources that we want to bring to bear to address health equity in Colorado. We don't have enough money or enough knowledge or enough engagement or enough contacts or enough partners to do it alone. So I just implore the people in the room 
and the people distributed across the state to think about how you can partner with us as we move forward. We will be doing, I think, a big piece of our work through community engagement. And I think Dr. Troutman gave a convincing argument about why that's the approach to go. We don't know the answers in these wonderful four walls, this great room, this historical building. But as we traveled around the state last year and talked to people in the communities, I know that the knowledge and the energy and the enthusiasm and the passion is in the community. And we are working on how to figure out to genuinely partner with you in community-based participatory grant making to make a difference in your communities addressing health equity issues. So um, I was just a little inspired, so I had to go off script. So, so thanks for being with us, and I need to move on to the next part of the program to make sure we give everyone a chance to inspire us as well. So I'd like to bring up uh, Karen Kinneman who is the Healthy Communities Manager for Eagle County Public Health. And then after her, we'll have another presentation as well. So if you can come up, Karen, I'd appreciate it. It's always difficult to follow um, behind the keynote speaker. So um, forgive me for not being as powerful as you, um, but that was amazing and thank you. I just wanted to thank the Colorado Trust and Dr. Troutman for opening up the dialogue on health equity in Colorado. This is an exciting time for Eagle County and the work that we're doing, and I would say that we've just begun the work of really trying to address health disparities and social determinants of health within our community. And I know they're um, all watching right now, so I would just wanted to give a shout out to Eagle County right now and say hello in the live stream. <laughs> um, so Eagle County is a rural resort region located in the heart of the Rocky Mountains, and it's about 100 miles west of Denver along the I-70 corridor. It's really geographically isolated with mountains and streams and rivers and canyons and the geography of the area really is a direct link between um, the root of health disparities in the community that we see. So the geography fuels the ski and tourist industry, inflating the cost of living and creating seasonal and low-wage jobs. And here we can see on the valley floor a lot of the um, low-wage workers live in mobile homes, and then you'll see the second home, wealthy second homeowners living on the side of the mountain. And really what this creates is enormous wealth disparities, and then we see enormous health disparities because of that in our community. Many of the low, um, resort low-wage workers attract lo um, Latino immigrants who often face language barriers, lack health insurance, and disproportionately suffer from chronic disease. And so here's just a brief profile of, of our community, and in particular, our health, um, what we're trying to achieve with health equity with the Latino population. So three out of 10 residents are Latino, and 30% are uninsured. 9% are linguistically isolated as compared to 4% in Colorado. 4.7 um, suffer from diabetes. And this is a particularly compelling statistic that 27 or $26 um, per hour is the wage needed for a single mother with two children to be self-sufficient in the community. And that's from the um, Cliff Effect study that the Women's Foundation did. 7.1% um, of the Hispanics um, suffer from obesity in our community. So I have five minutes, and our community is doing a, a lot of amazing work. And I would be remiss to try to cover everything that is going on. So I'm really focusing in on just the work that the Eagle County Public Health is doing at this time. So 
um, looking at some of the social determinants of health that we see in our community, high cost of living, language barriers, geographic isolation, seasonal low-wage jobs, and um, lack of health insurance. There are two initiatives that I'm gonna highlight today. The first is the Healthy Communities Coalition. So this is a community-driven um, coalition of about 25 partners that have come together to really try to um, target healthy eating and active living. But I think the vision is really what I wanna focus on and aligned with Healthy People 2020 that we're really looking for a community that promotes and fosters a healthy environment for all, and that we're really looking at health equity as the basis for this group. Um, some of the initiatives are initiatives you've probably heard about throughout Colorado. We have a um, worksite wellness challenge that we're doing across the community, really trying to incentivize our, our very um, robust economic driver in that community to provide work, um, worksite wellness for all, all employees rather than just the um, folks that can afford it. And we have a 5210 campaign going on across the community as well as um, creating food shed mapping and doing some food, food hub work, um, really focusing in on healthy food access for our, our Latino population with this group. And then the final initiative is really driven by the Public Health Department, and this is funded through the Office of Health Equity now um, with CDPHE, and it's a program really targeted toward the Spanish-speaking um, population in our community. And so we have a Spanish-speaking cooking show, a Spanish-speaking um, radio show, because we know that radio is the best way to reach our Spanish-speaking population. We have a Latino health leadership group that just emerged from this group, but we hope to expand and really take on a lot of greater initiatives within our community and really get the voice of the Latino population engaged in health equity work. And then finally, we're doing um, healthy food access policy with our food, with our, um, food banks to promote um, donation, produce donations to the food banks so that we get healthy donations there and so that we really limit nutritionally void food um, being donated to the pantries. And so those are just, again, some small initiatives and I just want to, really want to commend Eagle County as a community as a whole. We have great wealth disparities, but with that wealth, we have the, an incredibly generous community that, that contributes to our population and really tries to work toward health equity for all. So, Again, these are just tiny little pieces that we're working on right now, driven by public health, but um, I'm excited for the work that we're starting and the work that we're gonna continue in that community. And again, just opening up the dialogue around health equity is exciting for us at the public health department and in our community. So thank you for the time. Thanks, Karen. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry I skipped by. Uh, uh, George wears picture so quickly, but he's actually much better looking in real life. So I'd like to invite uh, George Ware up to the podium to share with us the Taking Neighborhood Health to Heart. Thanks, George. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, what I'd like to do is talk to you about a community-based participatory research initiative that um, I've been involved in. And I want you to know, these are just a subset of the people who have been involved over time. This is our council, and you can look at the diversity of people there. Um, this uh, group has been looking at improving the health or assuring health in five uh, Metro Denver neighborhoods. Next slide. And so um, as a foundation of the work we do, uh, it's, we, we really uh, believe in community-based participatory research. 
And just want um, people to think about that um, involves bringing all the partners who are involved in a research project together as equal partners and uh, uh, discussing a research or is focusing on a research topic of importance. And in this case, importance to the communities that we're working with and achieving action as a result of the work that we do. And so uh, actually we started in 2006 and it was uh, as a result of a uh, National uh, Institute of Health grant, and the grant, um, the purpose was to bring about uh, our neighborhood council, but also to collect key data uh, related to health and to use the council to make sense of that data, not to just go out, do a project, and get it published, and then not to have a context. The council, those council of residents provide a context for the data that um, we gathered and our research focus was um, to look at the impact of the built and social environment on elements of health and health disparities. So these are the different types of data that um, we collected. And um, I, I usually give this talk, it takes three of us, uh, usually around 30 minutes. So I'm really gonna run through this really quickly and not go through a lot of these. And hopefully this slide will be available for you later to look at some of these individual um, uh, measures that we collected through focus groups, uh, through uh, a walking audits of various neighborhoods, or through a, uh, a um, uh, telephone survey which involved 980 households. Next slide. And this is just a different way. For those of you who are more visual, um, this is a more fun way of looking at the information that we gathered, and actually also gives you a sense of the, the way it was gathered before to enlist people to participate in that survey. Uh, people went knocking on doors uh, and seeing, would you be, would you be interested in um, being, um, participating in the survey? Um, if, again, that was a systematic uh, sampling so we would get a random um, uh, sample that we could use to draw some inferences. Next slide. And so one of the things that you have to commit to when you do uh, community-based participatory research is to, dis to disseminate the information that you've gathered. And based on the survey, um, we have a group, it's called the uh, Data Review and Dissemination Committee, and we did a lot of discussing about what's the kind of information that we want to give back, that we want to make it available to other people. And you can see here we come up with various categories, healthcare access, food and physical activity, chronic health conditions, neighborhood connections, and neighborhood safety. And what, one of the things that we did when we had this information, we went back to communities. They were almost like Tupperware parties. We'd go back to people's households and we'd say, here's the information that we're finding out about your neighborhood. What do you think of this? Does this look like your neighborhood? And what should we be doing? And we also made sure that um, at least some of these were also in Spanish because we have one neighborhood that has a high uh, population of monolingual Spanish speakers. Just want to give you an idea of, from that initial study, we've done uh, actually quite a few studies um, from a study that looked at obesity uh, uh, in children to an, one that looked at how do you get youth to, um, to uh, participate in physical activities. Um, we did a study that we looked at what's the cost of a typical food basket um, at uh, various uh, stores in our neighborhoods, and we just re recently finished gathering data on the best ways to reach isolated uh, seniors. 
So um, uh, Dr. Troutman talked about visions, and um, at various times we've talked about visions, looking at our data, we're just having some discussions, and it goes um, well beyond just healthcare access. It's sidewalks, it's streets, it's parks, it's quality schools, lifelong learning, connected neighbors, access to health promoting, promotion information, jobs, economic security, ready access to affordable and healthy foods. And we um, just want to make sure that as a tenant of doing um, uh, community-based participatory research, it's not just about research, there's supposed to be actions that happen as a result of that. And some of the actions that we've um, brought about is we created community garden, we've enlisted local restaurants to participate in the Smart Meals program where they'll, uh, they'll um, have a uh, healthy uh, food option on their menu. We have help sh uh, soup share and learn events where there may be topics of interest to the community. We can come in and bring an expert in and be able to ask questions. We've shared our data with various um, health concerns um, so that others can use those data um, to improve neighborhood health. And one of the things about, um, I think there's value in even having that, that social, um, we um, have strength from uh, breaking bread together and socializing, and so part of that is convening our monthly, uh, we have monthly council meetings. And I think that should be it besides, next slide, um, our website, uh, www.tnh2h.org, or if you have questions, and I'm sure you probably do, um, tnh2hcolorado at gmail.com, and just send us an email. Thank you. Thanks, George. Um, when I was uh, interviewing for this position, one of the interviewers asked me if I thought I'd have any problems having nine bosses, uh, which is our trustees. And I said, are you kidding? I have 101 bosses under the Gold Dome right now. I wanted to recognize that a few of my former bosses who are now colleagues or friends are with us today, Senator John Kafalis and Senator Jeannie Nicholson. Thank you for coming. And three of my current bosses are here, Jennifer Paquette, Dr. Bill Wright, and Reverend R.J. Ross. I appreciate their involvement in, in our movement going forward. So to kick off the kind of question and answer session, I realized that we started really big and hairy and audacious and aspirational, inspirational with the issues around social uh, um, determinants of health and health equity. What we tried to do next, though, is to show you in Colorado, on the ground, in local areas, we can address these issues. And so we hope the dialogue looks at both you know, what we can do locally from a county uh, public health department to community-based participatory research program in the context of the the kind of overall framework that uh, Dr. Troutman gave us. Um, to get things started, because I know there'll be questions here and hopefully on Twitter and then across uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the viewing parties, but I'm actually gonna give our uh, co-speakers the chance to ask the first question. So maybe I'll start with Karen. Sure. <laughs> Dr. Troutman, um, topics such as racism and poverty are not always easy to discuss and are very complex. As a smaller rural public health department, we do our best to function at an environmental policy change level. 
what small steps can we begin to can we begin to become a community leader in addressing um, the social determinants of health? I, I certainly, certainly recognize the, the uh, difference between the urban and rural, uh, both in terms of size and intensity and, and, and issues, many of which are the same, just in different manifestations. And I also know that, that the average health department in the United States is 13 people. So it, it kind of puts it, puts it in the context of a real challenge for local public health to do something meaningful about the issue. Uh, but certainly, every health department can start by re-educating re or reorienting their own staff. Um, unnatural causes is a, is a great vehicle for, for discussion within the health department around your particular role, around what the community looks like, what, how, do these issues manifest how do these issues manifest themselves in our health department? How does my daily work impact health equity or, or, or health inequities? Um, how, do, how do the lives and the work of my community affect the way I see my job. So it's a very personalized, individualized, in some sense, way of addressing the issue. And extending that discussion to discussions about racism and sexism and homophobia and all the issues that are out there that, that create barriers for people to get equal access and live their, their life the way we all want to live their lives. So even a small health department can, can, can do that. And secondarily, begin to reach out and branch out to others other agencies in the small in those rural communities that are not specifically public health, but there there there's there's an, an an agency that handles transportation or, or certainly the school systems is, is a big one. I think education is one of the most important elements of finding ways to close the gap in excess debt. You can certainly interact with the school system and have conversations with the board, with the the the, uh, the board of education, um, the parent teachers association. Introduce. These concepts on natural causes have dialogue discussion. There are study guides available to, to lead that conversation. Or one of the things that, 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 that was done by some colleagues of ours, they found that the study guide that's currently provided with unnatural causes was too academic. So it became a community project to create a discussion guide for the community to deal with these issues. And so that's, that, I think that's something that's, that's small and and, and very directed and something I think that the small health department could, possibly, could, could be involved in. Last thing I'll say, um, NACHO, that's for those who don't know, it's the National Association of County City Health Officials, has developed a, a, a very, very comprehensive online class called uh, Uncovering the Roots of Health Inequities. It's very well done. It's, it's accessible to anybody with a computer. So a small health department can have some dialogue and discussions around some of the material that's on that website, and you can get that by nature.org. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, uh, George, before I turn to you, I just want to remind everyone that you can Twitter questions using the hashtag HealthEquityTCT. And George, do you have a question? Yes, sir. Dr. Troutman, um, given the nature of uh, social determinants of health, um, addressing things like racism, addressing things like jobs, those things are very difficult to do. The, um, they require us to have new partners. And just from what uh, my experience in public health is, that it tends to be that funders um, don't want to fund programs long enough that they take into consideration that it's going to take a long time to change some of the social determinants of health. So what advice would you give um, for those who want to measure progress in terms of what indices we should be uh, monitoring so that we can say we are making progress and mm -hmm. it is going to take us a while. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough challenge and um, I, I, in looking at your question, I thought about uh, 
the Connecticut Health Officers Association. I may have mentioned this yesterday. Uh, the, the state of Connecticut, the local health officers in the state of Connecticut felt there had to be a way to measure our success. Had to be some kind of some set of indices that we could use to show that we're making progress in terms of creating health equity. They developed a health equity index. It's available. It's online. Uh, it's the Connecticut Health Officers Association. It has some I don't know how many indices they've used. Dozens of indices that include things um, like um, community violence, educational attainment, um, some more in individualized indices around chronic and acute disease, but they also look at systemic issues. Uh, and they have found a way to come up with an in index that they can use to, to measure our success. Now, uh, it's going to be a long haul for all of us. You know, I, I jokingly said we're going to create, we're going to have a sure health and, and health care by tomorrow night at 5 o'clock. So maybe it's 6 o'clock rather than 5 o'clock. Uh, but because it's a long-term struggle, uh, and because it, inquire, it requires so many different elements of society, this is why we've been talking about this movement, building this movement that has multiple legs and multiple arms and multiple connections with multiple sectors of the community. I, I would mention that um, in the, Afford the Affordable Care Act, one of the good things about it, there is a prevention council. Prevention council is headed by the Surgeon General. Uh, it, it, it includes, I think it's 19 secretaries from cabinets, 19 cabinet secretaries that sit around a table with the Surgeon General to address in a multifactorial, holistic way the issues that are related to public health and health issues. So, you know, if you put, theoretically, uh, recognizing the infant mortality is one of the biggest issues that we've addressed over the decades. If you put infant mortality on the table, the Surgeon General work with these 19 cabinet ministers to find a way to address infant mortality that looks at education, housing, labor, FDA, all the various agencies that are out there. I think the model is one that's going to be applicable to the local level as well. Um, Louisville formed a similar council um, with the mayor at the mayor's uh, cabinet meetings on a, on a biweekly basis to start to address in a, multi, in a, in a kind of, you know, multi-sectoral way um, the, the, the issues that we're trying to address. So the Connecticut Health Officers Association, I think, is a good one. Uh, and I think we need to be creative with the evaluators to come up with some others that, that are more personalized and more localized, for instance. So I know there are people here from the University of Colorado somewhere. Yes? It's in the back. <laughs> um, charge, challenge them. You know, challenge, challenge the educational system. Challenge the academic experts, the, 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 the professors and in evaluation and, and epidemiology and whatnot to come up with some some, method, some indices that make sense for us at the local level and the state level and the national that we can monitor either with existing, um, existing processes or perhaps creating new ones so that we can, ultimately, as I said before, ultimately the, the ultimate measure of success is that we get to a place at some point in line where the gap is gone. But we have to, I agree with you, have to measure it. So at this point, I'd like to uh, open up uh, the session for discussion and questions from uh, the audience. And I hope you'll think of the whole panel, George and Karen and Dr. Troutman, as uh, able to address your issues. Tillman? <laughs> My name's Tillman Farley. I'm the uh, medical director of a community health center uh, here in the state. And um, one, of the, one of your co-authors, um, 
on this paper. Steve Wolf uh, did a, wrote a paper a few years ago looking at um, how many lives were saved by advances in medical technology through the 90s. And, and that for every life saved um, by an advance in medical technology, eight would be saved by correcting the disparity in education, and five would be saved by uh, correcting the disparity in, in uh, race. Well, I guess between, specifically between African Americans and whites. So, but now, in 2013, the NIH is still uh, spending most of its money, you know, in, in, in creating um, personalized pills based on the, you know, the decoded genome. Yes. So, yes. I'm just interested in your comments and, yeah. and how, we, how we change that. Yeah, it, by the way, it, it, it's, it's the funding question. I, I, I see Rudy waving his hand back there. Uh, the, we, talked about, we talked about this dramatic difference in access to funds based upon who you are. So it's not just, not just you know, the, the funds are being directed in the wrong direction in terms of the work that we want to see done, but even within that context, I think it was a seven to one, seven to one difference in access to Latinos and African-American researchers compared to the white, uh, white community. So we have an inequity within an inequity, within a wrong direction of uh, philosophical from the NIH. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of what we have to find a way to do is, is advocacy and putting pressure on systems. And in our business, being health, et cetera, even uh, the foundation, we don't do that very well. We are more likely to be um, uh, all about ethics and morality and, you know, altruism. Uh, the, when people like, and forgive me for saying it, people like the Tea Party folk, they got down to business. They made clear what their, what their, their goals were and their objectives were and organized effectively and efficiently all over this country. And, and a small group of people, ultimately, were able to dramatically change the whole direction of the Republican Party. And I'm not saying that, I'm just saying as an example of, of, of organizing technique and what they did. So we need to be more voracious as advocates and organizers and put the pressure on the government around NIH and the funding streams, because you're absolutely right. You know, not now that the notion of this personal, I'm very concerned about that. You know, that we'll have this pill for black folk and this pill for Latinos and this pill for white folk and say, whoa, whoa, what are we talking about here? And who's gonna make the decision who gets what, considering this imbalance that we currently have in terms of how things are run in the country? Maggie, do you have a question from elsewhere? Yes, this is from our online audience. How do we get the CDC and other federal organizations to expand the pyramid and begin to examine the causes of the causes? We challenge them at every turn. I have personally challenged uh, Dr. Frieden a couple of times about his, his, di his diagram is great. It's right on target. It's, it has social economic status and poverty on the back, but then they talk about winnable battles. So the implication is that CDC is saying we can't have a winnable battle around socioeconomic inequities and racism and, and injustice. And I refuse to believe that. I refuse to believe that. So it's about, again, about pressure, advocacy, organizing, putting uh, our, our concerns out there for the CDC to, 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 to address. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's an interesting time to ask the question. Uh, sequestration, which I think you all know about, has, has had the inevitable effect of having the major funding sources circle the wagons around what they consider their core work. 
So they're, they're actually becoming more insular and more siloed in response to the decrease in funding. I think there are a lot of touches to HRQ, CDC, uh, NIH, uh, CMS, and HRSA in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to take advantages of those touches to say, actually, sequestration provides you the opportunity to reach across the traditional silos and work with your partners to address the health of people of the United States. And they won't, I would just tell you, they're good people. I know them. I work with them. They won't do it by themselves. They will do what is the normal reaction to funding decreases, which is circle the wagons and protect what you have. And, and I think helping them through advocacy see the advantages and the opportunities that are presented by this uh, unfortunate unique point in time is something we have to take on ourselves. The, 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 average, the average person in the United States doesn't know who their senator is, doesn't know who their representatives are, may not even know who the mayor is, certainly well, may not know the city council persons. Every one of these levels are levels that there should be advocacy and pressure put on people to make the changes that we think are important for the work that we want to do. Another question? Yes. Um, Welcome, Doctor, and thank you, Colorado Trust, for putting on this event with Dr. Troutman. Um, I'm Rudy Gonzalez, uh, ED for Servicios de la Raza. And uh, re there was a recent report, Doctor, called Losing Ground, which uh, uh, is evidences the fact that we are living now in a country that has deeper and wider gaps in economics, in politics, in health, in education, in social welfare, in jobs and opportunities than there were before the civil rights movements of the 1960s. And with that, how, what strategies do you have to encourage, to engage uh, the dominant society to share power, to start developing real, uh, real uh, strategies to increase hiring in government in positions of directors and managers uh, that are representative of the communities they serve. Uh, case in point, city of Denver, we're 34 to 40 percent Latinos in this city, yet we're 4 percent at manager one, two, and above in the city of Denver. Uh, Denver Human Services, we serve 51 percent we serve, not we, but Denver Human Services serves Latinos, yet 0% are in administration there. What, and, and so those are some examples. So what strategies do you have, Doctor? <laughs> what an easy question that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first thing I wanted to point out is, is, is mentioned in the article that, that you have in your tables, uh, that um, the, the gap in excess death we've been talking about, that we know all the causes of it, the gap in excess death actually began to narrow during the civil rights movement. Not because there was a, a, a direct attention on health, but because there was a direct attention on the social determinants. It, it wasn't called that at the time, but the focus was on equal rights, jobs, housing, education, and so on. And, and because of the successes of the civil rights movement, the gap began to close. In the 70s, when the civil rights movement began to wane, the gap opened up again. It's a tremendous example to all of us that that's the direction that will, will bring about the change that we want. Now, all the things that you've said um, remind me of what was going on during the civil rights movement. 
the organizing around ending poverty and jobs for justice and, and, uh, and racism and hiring and discrimination, you know, the, the, the bottom line is that we didn't get rid of them. We, not, we, were, we were not successful in getting to the ultimate goal of not having these things continue to address, to continue to set the stage for people's shortened life expectancy and, not, and, and, and lack of access to services. It goes back to what I've said before. There is a, there is a methodology in building a movement. It's been written about, you know, we talked last night, so I know you're aware of some of the things that have been out there and written about. We just have to bring it, we have to find a way to revitalize that in a new way, in a way that represents the issues that we face today, not 1965. So you can't necessarily do things the way we did in 65, but a movement is definitely required. And, I, and I, we, we travel around the country as, a, as president of American Public Health Association. I've been to probably 14 states this year, and I have two or three more to go. And that's the message I've been pushing with APHA within the context of the affiliates. You need to be about the process of finding ways to help to build a movement. I don't say build it. I don't think the foundation can build a movement. It has to be a grassroots effort, but the foundation needs to be right to standing right there with support of all kinds so that they can, in fact, get where we want to get to. So I, I don't want it to go and said that there isn't a lot of movement happening in Colorado. Why we were excited as the Troutman Group to come here to see that some of those things are being addressed. Hi, Misha. Good afternoon. Thank you, Colorado Trust Ned, Dr. Troutman, for coming all the way here to the Rocky Mountains. Um, we certainly appreciate your expertise as it pertains to health equity. My name is Maisha Fields, and I am the ED for the Fields Foundation in Aurora. And um, we are very concerned and interested in, um, in addition to some of the things that Rudy talked about, workforce development. And specifically as it relates to the Affordable Care Act, what opportunities do you think would be available, specifically as it re relates to increasing diversity amongst people of color? I represent Aurora, where we have 136 different languages there. It's also a part of the Children's Corridor, which means that 75% of the kids who are in that area um, are reading two grade levels below and doing math two grade levels below. Um, as far as zip codes, it's like the zip code that gives you the worst indicators by the time you get to 18. But it's an asset. 15,000 children who potentially could end up having a job at the University of Colorado Anschutz campus, where there's over 136,000 jobs. So when you talked about the movement, how can I become the movement, Rudy become the movement, we all in this room become a movement that really identifies true intentionality around making sure that those jobs on that campus reflect the population in which they serve of black and brown youth who could potentially be dietary aides or um, physicians or dental hygienists. I, do you know of any opportunities through the Affordable Care Act? And what are your viewpoints on that? Thank you for the question, Maisha. I, I, I know that in the Affordable Care Act, there is money for training. There's money for scholarships for medical students and for public health professionals to go to school, uh, have it paid for by the government through the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the Public Health Service Corps is a vehicle. You know, you know, you know about you have to provide service back to the government at some site that they identify as a shortage area in order to, be, to pay back for the, for the loan or for the money they, they put out there for you. Um, I think for the first time, it's been expanded to include public health professionals. But I, I, I know that there's more money in there for physicians. So that's, that's, one, that's one potential 
uh, area of, of, uh, of support. Your question about what can I do to become a part of, the, of, a, of a movement, yep, you know, movements frequently organize around issues um, or, 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 or some other aspect of what is present in society that needs to be addressed. The issues, the issues could be as different as everybody in this room, but you need to identify what the issues are in your neighborhood, in your community that you need to address. Find allies, uh, analyze who, the, who, who, is, who are the enemies in terms of preventing, preventing you from getting what, it's an important part of the process, to know who's for you and who's against you. Uh, and then begin bringing those people who are for you together and have dialogue and conversations about what a strategy looks like. A strategic conversation has to be held in order to, find a, in order to build a movement that's gonna be effective in addressing what, what, the, what your personal issues are. I'm afraid uh, we could go on all day, but we've run out of time. So I need to wrap up. I just wanna point out, Miesha, that there's a report on the ACA and health equity on the rack behind you that actually talks about the fact that schools or programs that give priority to students who will serve or come from disadvantaged populations will have priority. So there is some direct uh, contact about diversity of the workforce. Perhaps not as direct as we all would wish, but it is in there. Um, I wanna thank Dr. Troutman, Karen, and George for being with us today. Certainly they were the folks bringing the knowledge to the table, and um, I'll give you one last chance to thank them in a moment. I also have to point out that uh, these events uh, require a significant amount of work from a dedicated staff, and I want to make sure that I uh, point out Jill Johnson, who actually went above and beyond the Call of Duty in working on this project, as well as uh, Alicia, uh, Elisa um, and, uh, Bourne and uh, Michelle Chater, who helped check folks in. This is a great, th this is always a team effort, and I can't uh, go without recognizing them. Then our health team. Um, is uh, Chris Armejo, Maggie Frazier, and who, although she's not here with us today, uh, uh, Courtney Ricci, who is taking care of her now almost two-month-old baby. So I guess she has her priorities straight. We know that good health depends on more than medical care. I think you've heard that community engagement's an important way to look at ending the inequalities facing racial, ethnic, low-income, and other populations. We, have, we really believe that working together with communities is the way to get there. I, I hope you'll join us for the additional learning sessions that we have planned. The next one is on September 12th. A panel of three foundation leaders from across the country will present foundation solutions, their solutions to health equity. More information is on our website. And then I always have to say there's no such thing as a free lunch. At your seats, there is a survey that will help us determine how the Health Equity Learning Series can better meet your needs in the future, so I hope you'll take the brief amount of time to fill it out. Uh, and then if you will all join me in giving one last thanks to our panel.